Welcome to the Comparative Media Studies Writing Podcast, run by us here, the faculty, staff, and students at CMSW at MIT. I'm Andrew Whitaker. This week we celebrate the publication of The Hunt for Vulcan, the new book by science writing professor Tom Levinson about a planet that never existed, despite, as you hear from Tom, generations of astronomers being convinced it did. It's a great story, all about how Albert Einstein, quote, destroyed a planet, discovered relativity, and deciphered the universe. Since our colloquium series acts as a class for our grad students, I asked Tom to spend a little time not just on his book, but what it's like for young writers to take some really specialized content and turn it into something all readers will love. As you'll hear, that turns out to be just as fascinating as the book itself. The Hunt for Vulcan is already on a bunch of must-read lists, so now it's on yours. We're linking to it on our website. Just head to cmsw.mit.edu slash Vulcan. So now, let's hand things over to one of Tom's science writing colleagues, Seth Manukin. It is my distinct honor to be introducing uh, our illustrious guest tonight. Um, Tom Levinson is a filmmaker and author uh, and the director of MIT's very own graduate program in science writing, of which I see several alum in the audience. Um, and his latest book uh, is a project that he started not that long ago. Um, he is also presently working on another longer book, and he said, oh, I have an idea for a little something that I might want to put together um, about uh, Albert Einstein and the hunt for the planet Vulcan. Um, and I said, I didn't know there was a planet Vulcan. Uh, and he said, right you are. Uh, and it was Einstein who was able to prove that. And previous to that, um, from roughly the period of Newton through when Einstein proved this, people thought there was a planet Vulcan, right? Or at least from when Neptune was discovered yeah, from then on, yeah. right? Um, so he, in what the amount of time it takes me to clear my throat, um, wrote an absolutely wonderful and delightful um, book called The Hunt for Vulcan. Um, this is actually, I think, the UK edition. You can sure. tell because it has this very nice uh, placeholder that American books don't come with. Um, and uh, Heather Hendershot, our, our uh, comparative media studies and writings, Heather Hendershot, will be Tom's interlocutor for the evening. Um, so thank you all for coming, and on with the show. Okay, thank you, Seth. Um, yes, this was a this was just a sweet project. First of all, I do want to acknowledge one person in the audience, Alan Adams, professor of physics here. And the reason I want to acknowledge him is, is one of the most important things as a science writer when you write about technically complex subjects is you need to have, to an extreme degree, a fear of looking stupid in public. And in order to avoid that, you need to know people who will be kind to you who actually know the stuff you're talking about. And Alan was one of those people, one of the key people for me in this, and I thank him in the book, and I thank him here. So um, the reason we have the British uh, edition here is because I had a book event uh, on publication day on Tuesday at the MIT Museum, where the museum failed to get its books in time from the publisher. So every last copy I own was hauled over there and subsequently sold. So you're seeing, I mean, I guess that's the cover of the American edition. You can see a difference in design philosophy, if any of you care about that. Um, yes, this was a very swiftly written book. It, it, uh, was accepted by my publisher after they'd already bought this other project. Uh, and the only caveat is I had five months to write it. And I just made it. Just. Um, I was really disappointed. It takes a long time always after you get the letter of agreement to actually get a contract out of a publisher. Um, 
and I really wanted to finish the book before the contract came through, and I missed it by a week, um, which is pretty good, but still I missed it. Um, so my plan for the, for the next while is to talk about the book itself, um, and then sort of at the very end spend a little bit of time just sort of provoking you on what it's like to, to bring a popular book, a trade book, into the uh, an insufficiently popular book in most cases of the 80,000 books that are published per year in this country, um, into the world in a day when, uh, in a time when the old uh, um, standard means of matching a new literary project with a potential audience, all the structure of literary journalism that was here back in the good old days of 20, 30 years ago uh, is now gone for the most part, leaving, a, you know, there's a rump left, but it's, it's, it's much, much less well-structured than it was even very recently. And, um, and how you approach the problem of bringing a book before a potential audience in uh, what you guys study, a very rapidly changing media environment. So I'm going to tease that, and we can talk about it more in the Q&A. Uh, and there's one topic I want to invite you to address in the Q&A if you choose, but I'm not going to emphasize here, which is anything about the mechanics or process of publishing a trade book. And I'm happy to talk about any part of that process from moving from an idea to something that might actually make sense as a trade book to the proposal to all the steps towards actually bringing it into the world and hopefully enjoying the result. Um, so, but mostly I'm going to talk about the book and the process. I, you know, in part in the process I went through to make it happen and then, and then mostly what the book itself attempts to do. Uh, the first thing you should know about it is the book was, was done extremely quickly. Uh, but the ideas behind the book are not at all a recent, uh, recent sort of goad to me. I started writing and making films about Einstein a little over 20 years ago. I started thinking about doing those kinds of things more than 25 years ago now. Um, and uh, in 1995, when I was involved in my first two big Einstein projects, a, a two-hour Nova documentary and, uh, and what became my, my longest book, if not my best one, um, you know, I came to the point in Einstein's life when he was working on what we call the general theory of relativity, uh, which is Einstein's theory of gravity. And, and, you know, for those of you who are familiar with it, or those of you who are unfamiliar with it, it is the theory that, that physicists and cosmologists use to think about the large-scale structure of the universe. They think about the evolution of the universe from its very different past to its present and its ultimate destination. It's, it's a it is a fundamental piece of how we understand reality. And there's a wonderful story behind Einstein's development of general relativity, and I'll talk very briefly about that later in, in the next few minutes. Um, but as I was doing this and you know, trying to construct you know, something that would be dramatic in terms of television and would make a good read as well as you know, great information and so forth, um, I came across the period when he was right at the end, when he'd been working on it for several years, and he was... He'd, gone down a bunch of blind alleys, uh, and he had finally, in really, you know, quite, quite extreme circumstances, personally and emotionally, all kinds, of, and intellectually, he'd finally cracked what had been holding him up for, at that point, eight years. And in roughly six weeks, in uh, late October and November, or actually most of October and part of November of 1915, he figured it all out. And then um, over the course of the month of November, uh, on uh, four Thursdays, uh, November 4th, 11th, 18th, and, uh, and 25th, 
uh, he presented his new results to the Prussian Academy of Sciences, which was itself a kind of, I mean, I'm sure it was always kind of a strange place, but in the middle of, of wartime Berlin, it was even stranger and lacking all its younger members and so forth because they were off doing terrible things um, or having terrible things done to them in some cases. Um, and, you know, I was just working through this and trying to learn it and reading the biographical materials and reading Einstein's letters and all that. And um, I came across what he did on the third of those Thursdays uh, when he reported to the, the Prussian Academy that he had um, uh, calculated the orbit of Mercury and found that his theory predicted the correct result. The, you know, that the, predict, the predicted orbit in his theory matched uh, the observed figure. Um, oh, okay, that's neat. That's a nice test of the theory. Oh, you know, all well and good. Um, but then I started reading, you know, his letters about this that he wrote to friends over the next few months. And in one, he said, "I had palpitations in my chest." That, you know, his heart leapt in his body at finding Mercury's orbit come out correctly in his calculation. To another, he said he was beside himself with joy. And there was a possibly apocryphal story that he said he couldn't work for a couple of days. And, and you know, for any one of you who might be, you know, deep into the Einstein world, the idea of, I mean, Einstein was actually calculating on the day he died. There are, you know, not just notes, there are actual, you know, working through equations from his last day in the hospital as the aneurysm that killed him was bursting. So Einstein was not a guy who took time off. And you know, the idea that calculating the orbit of Mercury would, would cause him to, to be so deranged was really striking. And at the time, I didn't really dwell on it, because you know, I was still trying to master it, and I was telling this you know, narrative of the Fourth Thursdays and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I stuck it in my hip pocket, because it seemed to me just sort of out of measure with the reported active a action. You know, calculating planet, planetary trajectories, celestial dynamics is classically a Newtonian thing. I mean, people have been doing this for hundreds of years. And, you know, okay, there was an error he found that he could, or there was, you know, an anomaly he found he could solve it, great. Uh, but it didn't make sense to me that the thing he said he had done, the thing he had in fact done, uh, was such a source of joy. So even though at the time I couldn't really, uh, you know, I didn't know enough, I wasn't yet, you know, just sort of immersed enough, I wasn't perhaps in sympathy with my subject enough. You know, you have to, when you work on somebody, you have to, you have to spend time with them and sort of get a feel for who they are. And I didn't know Einstein well enough yet to know why this was, was so odd. But over time, it stuck with me. And I mean, I think, you know, just as a little aside from the talk, is, is I think all my best ideas uh, have come with things that didn't quite fit that I then stored away for a while and waited until they bugged me enough to, to address them more deeply. And that's certainly the case for this book. It's actually the case for the book I'm working on now as well, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so eventually I got back to it, and I started finding out why figuring out the orbit of Mercury was such a big deal. And um, to go back to at least a beginning, if not the beginning, let's take a look at that. This is, a, as you can maybe see in the tiny text, it comes from um, a medieval manuscript, late 14th century, called the Breviari d'Amour. And this is, I mean, I, I think this is particularly pr beautiful, but it's, it's typical of representations of how the cosmos works, which is basically, you know, you have heaven that orders the cosmos, and you can see that, you know, connection in these lovely green-robed angels cranking uh, the celestial sphere 
and, uh, and making everything go just right. Um, and, you know, clearly that is uh, both an article of faith and in some sense a metaphor for, you know, organization, how nature works, that there are, you know, agents of, of the supernatural that are, you know, infused through our experience. Um, then to leap ahead a few centuries and to, to utterly and viciously crush you know, all nuance and subtlety, uh, you get the scientific revolution. And uh, this guy, this is romantic Newton. This is, this is sexy Newton. This is, from, this, is his first ever, this is his first known portrait, first surviving portrait, and probably the first one ever made of him. comes from 1689, which is just a couple of years after he publishes this, which is the... I think, without doubt, the most important book in the history of science. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll welcome any candidate, uh, candidate, uh, candidates for the title, but I, I, I'm pretty, pretty much a fan of this one. This is the Principia. It is the, um, it is the book with which Newton um, essentially completed what had been a program of, uh, of, of. Uh, a huge number of people investigating the natural world, not just in Europe, uh, but in the Middle East and, and India, whose results were transmitted to Europe, of course, um, in doing what, uh, what one historian scientist, uh, what, what one historian of science said actually of Galileo, uh, the problem of subjecti- subjecting matter to number. And the reason that's important, um, uh, of course, is that... Um, when you have mathematical descriptions of nature, uh, you have, in some ways, a very complicated metaphor, and in other ways, you have a um, a claim that I think is largely borne out, and we can talk about this if you want to. Not largely, that is borne out. Um, that th- there is a meaningful way in which to understand a mathematical description of nature as a as a direct description, a representation of nature and not a metaphoric image of that which we see with our senses or our instruments or what have you. Um, you know, the fact that you can observe the objects in the sky moving across a single dome, translate it into a map like that, and then apply mathematics to generate maps, uh, you know, new positions and so forth and so on, is um, a singular intellectual move. That's, there are you know, lots of things you can say about what the scientific revolution is, but um, that move from metaphor to description and description in an abstract form that can be translated to other uses is, uh, if it's not the very core of it, it, it's at least one of its central pillars. And that's what Isaac Newton did. And he did it in the Principia uh, in a very interesting way, building the body of mathematics across the first two sections of the book. And then in the third section, producing what he called, this is, you know, this isn't my, you know, applying a science writer's spin on it. Uh, a third book of the Principia that is titled The System of the World. Um, and that was where he applied his mathematics to the specific problem of organizing the solar system. And he begins by looking at, you know, how his, uh, you know, starting with the three axiomatic laws of motion and um, his law, universal law of gravitation, the inverse square law, um, he shows how you can, you can analyze, uh, model, and then predict the motions of everything from the moons of Jupiter and Saturn to the behavior of our own moon to the tides on our Earth. Huge accomplishment, that one. I mean, and, and, and 
huger in a human sense when you realize that to steal Simon Schaefer's line, uh, Isaac Newton, born on an island and never saw the sea, is the person who resolved the problem of the tides. I mean, I just find that, you know, just emotionally incredibly sweet, as well as a way, a, a kind of peculiar insight into Newton himself. Um, so the, uh, and then he goes on, uh, Newton, you know, in, in sort of uh, expository terms, going from the furthest reaches of the known solar system, the moons of Saturn and Jupiter, to the Earth with the problem of the tides, um, would seem to be, you know, a complete rendition of what we're, of, of what the system of the universe would contain. But the really interesting thing in the Principia is that, I mean, I think Newton was a, uh, I'm not sure if he was a great stylist, but I think he had a better sense of, the, of, of, of drama than he's sometimes given credit for. He actually leaves the Earth at the end of the third book of Principia and goes out to a comet. Not just any comet, not Halley's Comet, actually, uh, which is a famous comet that, that you know, his good friend, his younger friend Halley, would use Newton's laws to, to show it was a recurring, returning comet but a comet that, that arrived uh, in the night sky two years after the one that, that would become known as Halley's. And that had a very different kind of trajectory. It had a, 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 para, a parabola, excuse me, easy for me to say once upon a time, a parabolic trajectory. Um, and Newton, I mean, it was just sort of ex exhausted, worse than the begats in the Bible, tallies all this enormous list of observations from all different kinds of sources. Uh, and shows how all those observations add up. If you can do the geometry, again, mapping from that dome of our own night sky to um, a, uh, a, a view like this one, uh, it had to travel a parabola. And then he shows how with just three points, his theory generates a parabola for you, generates the same orbit. And he says, uh, you know, at the end, of his, his one sort of little bit of a victory lap in Principia is a theory which so, close, you know, so closely matches to observations uh, and is so precisely produces this orbit, cannot uh, fail but to be true. And that's his sort of like, I did it. Um, but what's interesting is Newton, you know, Newton showed that this could be done, but he didn't show how to do it in every case. I mean, for example, he was unsuccessful throughout his life, and he tried a long time uh, to uh, come up with a complete theory of the motion of the moon, because the problem of the moon is, that, is the problem with the moon is that there are actually two bodies that exert influence on it. There's the Earth and the Sun. I mean, yes, there are other planets in, in, in ignorable ways, but those, you know, just having two bodies exert an influence on a third uh, is enough to make the mathematics, you know, ferociously more complicated and very interesting. And there's a whole history of the so-called three-body problem that we're not going to go into here. Um, but, you know, when you're dealing with trying to map out the entire solar system, there's lots of interactions amongst lots of planets that behave in all kinds of ways. And Newton's mathematics as he knew them, weren't good enough. And so for the next hundred years and more, after the publication of Principia in 1687, uh, some of the best minds in the physical sciences tackled the problem of developing new mathematics and applying them appropriately to increasingly sophisticated observations of the night sky with a view to proving that Newton's, theory, Newton's system of the world was, in fact, both the true system of the world and applied to every new observation, every new discovery, everything that could be... Um, uh, understood about uh, the motion of everything in the universe. And I'm not going to talk about my favorite character in all of this, uh, Laplace, who is, I think, a, a deeply neglected figure in the history of science, uh, in part because he was the first person to apply ideas about probability to assessing how much you should believe your scientific results, 
which is, you know, sounds, I mean, it may sound kind of dull and trivial, but it's actually both exciting intellectually and, and incredibly important, and not, and often not very well done uh, today. So there's, you know, there are lessons to learn there. But the person who was really the, the boss of uh, this effort to reduce every motion in the heavens to, uh, to an order dictated by ne- uh, Newton's view of the universe was this character with the marvelous name of Urbain Jean-Joseph Jean Le Verrier, which is a grand, grand moniker. Um, he was not a nice guy. He was an arrogant ass. He was one of the, I mean, he was a true demon boss, you know, the boss from hell. Um, he was pompous. He was all kinds of terrible things. And he was unmatched as a mathematical astronomer. You know, if he did the calculation, that was good enough. It was right. Um, and he is most famous for having done the calculation, looking at anomalies in the orbit of Uranus, uh, and then uh, using his, his, you know, again, a very, very difficult, complicated piece of mathematical reasoning uh, to say if to, to a, uh, an astronomer at the Berlin Observatory, if you point your telescope on this September night to that region of the sky, and you look around and look for a, you know, an object that actually shows a disk of a certain small size. I've forgotten exactly how big it was. Um, and, uh, and you should look at it, and it will be a new planet. And so this guy, uh, Gall, uh, was his name, uh, did what he was told uh, with an assistant. And within two hours, I mean, it was just like, basically, you know, he looked up and he saw Neptune, uh, the first planet to be discovered by the systematic application of... Uh, scientific method. Um, and it was, as his contemporary said, as if Le Verrier had discovered Neptune at the tip of his pen. And the reasoning was very simple. You know, there were uh, orbital anomalies in the trajectory of Uranus. Uh, once you tallied all the influences that could possibly be coming from Saturn and Jupiter and the Sun and anywhere else, uh, there was a residue of unexplained motion. And using Newton's theory of gravity, you could say that another object of a certain mass at a certain distance would uh, impose just enough additional gravitational force uh, to produce the orbit that was seen. And, you know, what was beautiful about the calculations, there were some errors. You had to make assumptions about how big it was and how far away it was. You know. And there were some constraints on it. If it were too big, it would have an effect that would be seen on Saturn and so forth. But it was, you know, still, a, a, you're a guessing game. And Leverrier not only, you know, got the right answer, but he also constrained the ways his, you know, making the wrong assumption would hurt him. He actually figured out a way to make the consequence of error less significant. And, uh, and uh, he was hailed as the discoverer of Neptune, became uh, a public celebrity, the most famous astronomer of his day by far. Um, and all kinds of things happened to him because of that. Um, and, uh, and after he sort of dealt with the experience of being in Paris during the 1848 revolutions and handled the transition to the Emperor Napoleon III, which he had to navigate, um, and all that other stuff. He got back to what, was go- what he had proposed as soon as he sort of got the fame that he needed to, to impose his will on, on the scientific establishment. Uh, he was going to do a theory of the entire solar system. He was going to go back over all the planets and make sure that you know, Newton's theory was right in every detail for everything that was out there. And finally, in the late 1850s, he got to Mercury, and he found this. Um, so the perihelion, that funny word, is the point uh, on the orbit where the planet is closest to the sun. Um, And because of the influence of multiple objects, um, 
the actual shape, you know, the shape of the orbit stays basically the same, but the point at which that perihelion falls on the circuit changes over time. Um, and this is, you know, nothing is true of all the planets. Uh, no, no surprise there. But when Leverrier actually tallied it all up, he found that um, uh, there was a residue that you, you look at Venus and Jupiter, which are the two largest influences after the Sun, and then the Earth and a little bit of Mars and all that. You add up everything that could possibly be affecting how Mercury is moving, and there was a tiny residue of error. Um, he measured it at 38 arc seconds per century, which if you think that there are 60 seconds of arc in a degree and there are 360 degrees in a circle, that's really not very much. It's tiny. It's one ten thousandth of the orbit. It's, it's just a, a trivial error. Um, and one of the reasons it was only noticed as late as that is because is it took, you know, Mercury is a hard planet to observe, and it took that long just to accumulate enough data to, to, to know where it was with enough precision to say that there could be an error that small. Um, the error, and, and, you know, just to emphasize, this is really, you know, this is true. I mean, this is obviously an exaggerated drawing of that, but there is a precession of the perihelion, the advance of the perihelion, um, and if you, you know, analyze it in the Newtonian form, it's slightly larger than what Leverrier calculated. It's around 45 arc seconds per century, uh, with modern, you know, having taken all the modern data in. Um, but it really, it's absolutely there. Um, so it's just, a, you know, I mean, again, remember, Leverrier was very, very good. He really caught this. He saw something that was at the limit of, you know, mathematical acuity and instrumental possibility at the time he found it. But of course, even though it was tiny, it was still there. Uh, and the, given the example of Neptune, the explanation for it was obvious. You know, if you've analyzed all the gra sources of gravitational influence on an object and it's still moving in a way that is unexplained, then you know there's another something or other, uh, you know, yanking on it. And Leverrier, certainly the discoverer of ne the hero of Neptune, uh, knew this better than anyone. And in the first paper he published announcing this result, he said uh, people should look for a planet or flock of asteroids inside the orbit of Mercury. Uh, and as you can imagine, they did. You know, this was, the, this was the hero of Neptune saying this with a calculation that everybody felt was, you know, correctly felt was, was uh, absolutely on the money. Um, and somebody out there had the chance to be the next, you know, to grab the next great addition to the solar system and become at least in some partial form as famous as, uh, as you could imagine in that period. Um, so people started looking for it. And uh, what really made this book go for me, the reason I did this book, the reason I actually wrote this book, was when I found stories like this one. That's a little observatory owned by a country doctor. Um, and uh, when Leverrier announced that there was this likely planet inside the orbit of Mercury, this doctor who had conceived of some time before the idea of looking for asteroids inside the orbit of Mercury as a, you know, not, not with any view to big enough to, to, to influence uh, something the size of a, of a planet, but just as a possibility where an amateur could discover something, uh, went back through his records and said, aha, I have already found Vulcan. And he wrote a letter to Leverrier late in 1859, just a couple months after the article first came out, about the time it takes for such news to sort of trickle down the, the information chain to a country doctor some miles out of Paris. Uh, and Leverrier came and visited him on New Year's Eve, walked across 11 miles of fields to get to, to his uh, little village, and, um, and interviewed him. And there's a, there's a hilarious account of Leverrier describing the interview at a party 
that was published in a, in a sort of somewhat scabrous uh, Parisian quasi-intellectual magazine in 1860, which describes, you know, the lion roaring at this lamb-like amateur who was, you know, rallying each time in front of the attack to persuade the very that he had, in fact, seen uh, what, uh, what he claimed to have seen. And what he claimed to have seen was something roughly like this. This is actually an actual NASA photograph of a transit of Mercury, um, but this is how you find planets that are, you know, close to, close to stars. It's how we find, it's, it's in essence how uh, the satellite Kepler finds planets around other stars, even now. Um, but basically, you know, you can't easily see little non, non, you know, radiant objects against the bright light of a star unless they pass directly in front of them on your line of sight, and you can see this lovely, perfectly symmetrical uh, black silhouette. Um, and that's what Les Carbeau had seen. He'd seen a round object. He'd, he used to duck out between patients. And so he arrived in his observatory a few minutes after this object had crossed the limb of the sun, the edge of the sun. Uh, and he watched it for a while, and then another patient came, and he had to go back, and then he came back out again, and the thing was still trucking across the face of the sun, and he watched it till it went over the limb. And he said, aha, given what I now know from Leverrier's you know, analysis of Mercury, that must be a, a, you know, an intramercurian body. And Leverrier, after questioning him in considerable detail, accepted it and published it. And someone, no one knows who, gave it the name Vulcan, for the Roman god of the forge, close to the sun, makes sense. Uh, and Lescarbeau got the, the Légion d'honneur and um, went back into essentially complete obscurity. Um, and people tried to find Lescarbeau's planet again, which they failed to do. But no matter, this was such a, a you know, an extraordinary idea um, that people kept looking for it. And for the next 20 years, they kept finding it. There are at least a dozen uh, claims of discovery uh, by reputable people, professional astronomers or accomplished amateurs. And there are many, many more of people who sort of said, oh, yeah, I saw that. I saw, some, you know, I saw this when I was, there's a letter from an unnamed, from a, a last name only somebody in, who writes a letter from what he calls Constantinople, obviously an unreconstructed Byzantine by that point. Um, there are, there's a, uh, an alderman, I think, in the city of London uh, claims to have seen it in the 1840s. I mean, there's all this kind of stuff. But there are, in fact, these highly reputable, in some cases professional observers, who, uh, who say, yes, we have seen Vulcan, either during an eclipse when you can see um, a dim body with the, the bright light of the sun blocked by the face of the moon, um, or via transit. And all this, you know, and, and each time a, a credible discovery came, people tried to find, uh, tried to repeat the observation, looking for a transit at a time when, you know, reasonable calculations of the orbit of the object that had been found uh, would suggest it should once again pass between our line of sight and the face of the sun. And they kept on coming up empty. Um, and it was quite controversial. Uh, and there was even, you know, the New York Times was a big Vulcan supporter for a while and would write, you know, articles sneering at pedantic astronomers who insisted on more proof. Um, and, you know, many astronomers, uh, you know, were, were very, very eager to, to seek it um, for very good reason. You know, the thing about Vulcan uh, as an idea is that it made, it's perfectly good science. It was the only plausible explanation at the limit of knowledge at the time. The issue wasn't looking for Vulcan. The issue was finding it. And all this came to a head at last uh, in 1878 at the great American eclipse that came 
started in, you know, actually started in Siberia, crossed uh, the North Pacific, crossed over Canada, came to the United States, I think in Montana, and here we are in the town of Rollins, uh, Wyoming, which I actually visited last January. Um, and a couple interesting people in this photograph. Uh, this fellow here is Thomas Edison, who came out to the Eclipse to mo mostly as a holiday to go hunting and fishing, um, but, in, but with the excuse that he was going to test an infrared sensor that he had invented to see if it could detect the heat of the corona of the sun, which is very ambitious, and he failed at it. Uh, but he was out there. And then there was this character, this uh, well-padded gentleman who, whose name was James Watson, who was the director of the Ann Arbor Observatory. And he, along with another guy in this photo, whom I'm not sure where he is and should look it up but haven't, um, uh, were out there, uh, two competing uh, astronomers, looking for Vulcan in the, sh in, in the, in the darkness, momentary darkness of the eclipse. Um, eclipses uh, were and are romantic. I love this cover. It's a drawing of the eclipse as it was observed in Colorado. Um, and there were eight stations that the federal government had set up to observe this, to do different kinds of measurements. Um, and uh, the two astronomers looking for Vulcan uh, pr as, as a major part of their obser observations were in the Wyoming station, and they both ended up at a little place that no longer exists called Separation Wyoming. And there in the four minutes or so of totality, uh, Watson saw it, a, ready, a reddish disk uh, just to his left of the sun, uh, very close in, and the other did not. Didn't look, you know, was scoping other areas and missed it. And, you know, that's perfectly plausible. That's not a proof that, that, that Watson's observation was wrong. But the problem was nobody else, except for one amateur in Colorado, had seen anything that matched any remote possibility of being Vulcan. And that was kind of the death blow. At that point, um, a very few holdouts said, yes, Vulcan has to be there. And there was one uh, eclipse expedition as late as 1914 where they looked for it. But basically, the, the, almost all the astronomical community said, you know, whatever's going on, it ain't that. We, we've exhausted the possibilities uh, for Vulcan to be real. And, and, you know, there are lots of reasons why they were correct to do that. One of them was that, you know, this story in some sense is a probe of the, the way instrumental change, instruments changing, affects the history of science. This is the period during which astrophotography becomes uh, a big deal. And once you start taking photographs, uh, that are sufficiently sensitive, you can begin much more authoritatively to rule out the possibility that there's some object up there that isn't in the catalogs, that isn't on the star maps, that you haven't seen before. Um, so, no Vulcan. But here's the other reason I wanted to write this book, is that's 1878, and Einstein's general relativity came along in 1915. There is, um, you know, there's a credo in science, or it's almost, it's really a cliche, that a single brute fact can um, destroy the most beautiful theory, right? Probably heard variations on that. Um, uh, Rich Feynman said the most important way in which you determine whether something is so or not is by the test of observation. If nature doesn't conform to what you want it to be, too bad, you're wrong, nature's right. And there's this you know, assumption that science gets its extraordinary power by its ability to set those tests for itself and accept the results. And, you know, that sounds great. You'll learn that 
when you do a science fair experiment when you're a you know, 14 year old, you learn it again when you're first introduced to physics or what have you in your first year of college. Uh, if you stick with it through graduate school, you, you know, I was reading you know, graduate studies websites that were saying essentially the same thing. And the trouble with it is that in the Vulcan story, and I would argue in many other stories, that ain't the way it works. And again, if I can do a, just a slight meta aside here, uh, one of the things about science writing is it is many things. It's didactic, it's expository, it has a civic function, it's journalism, um, but it is, to my mind, always also a literary genre. And that means it, a couple things, I mean, there are many things it could mean when I say that, but what I'm really thinking about is it, uh, generates an emotional connection in the reader's mind or the viewer's mind uh, because it addresses conflict. Uh, there's some kind of, conflicts can take many forms. The characters involved may not be human or sentient, but there's an issue of conflict. And the other thing is uh, that to be successful in that sense, um, science writing always is, you know, any story you tell is always about something more than itself, something more than the plot. And you know, to be really blunt about it here, the more than the plot element that um, I found compelling in this story is the way in which we see that from this one beautiful, tightly contained little story of this planet that should have been there and wasn't, um, a way to get inside the gap between the perception of science and the reality of doing science as a day-to-day -day experience. And as much as anything else, that's what I hope comes through in the book itself. Um, and you see this in what happens next in the story, which is surprisingly nothing. Uh, if you believe the cliche of science, a, even that tiny little anomaly, those 38 or 45 arc seconds of uh, perihelion precession should have been enough to say, well, if that's not explainable by what we now know, then we have to question what we now know. We have to look at Newton's theory in a deep way. And there were several attempts to come up with ad hoc solutions. People tried to imagine, well, maybe the sun's fatter than, it, than uh, we thought around the middle. Well, it's not. Um, maybe there's a halo of dust that we haven't seen yet that could provide enough matter to produce the effect we see. There isn't, and they, they found that out pretty quickly. Maybe you can tweak the inverse square law of gravitation just a little bit instead of, you know, uh, to the second power, to the second point oh oh oh, you know, 173 or whatever. And, you know, it, that's possible. I mean, there are some num fundamental numbers in nature that are just weird, um, but the, uh, the fine structure constant being the most, most famous one. Um, but, you know, it turns out that if you do that, uh, you get problems with the orbits of the other planets, so that's probably not right either. And after a while, people stop trying to find expedients, but they also stop thinking about the problem. I mean, Mercury became the crazy uncle, or Vulcan, if you prefer, became the crazy uncle in the attic, hooting away, and if you were a polite person, a, you know, a well-mannered person, you, you very kindly you know, allowed yourself not to notice the noise up there muffled by two or three floors and some insulation. Um, and there's lots of other interesting stuff going on in science. There's radiation, you know, the discovery of the electron, um, the birth of quantum theory, all kinds of just great stuff going on in science. Lots of reasons to think, well, you know, there's this minor problem in the solar system. They'll figure it out eventually. We don't have to care about it. Uh, and that was a state of play until... This fella came along. This is actually a, uh, not, the, not the young, ardent Einstein nor the old man of the wild hair and, and the sockless shoes. This is Einstein as a mature, middle-aged, distinguished professor in Berlin. I think this picture is, I can't remember whether this is 1914 or 1916, but it's, it's, it's right in that period. Um, 
And he comes along and he addresses the problem of Vulcan, except not exactly. Um, he starts to work on gravitation not because he is upset by an anomaly that people aren't taking seriously enough. He comes up, he comes to the problem of gravitation because his special theory of relativity, which is a theory of uh, how to understand the different descriptions of motion to observers in relative motion with each other, uh, will come up with that that theory, which you know by you know all, is immediately recognized as an accurate, powerful advance in the understanding of nature, and by 1907, two years after it's been proposed, has become you know clearly part of the fabric of just everything else that physics is doing, except for one area. It, it does not account for the motion under the influence of gravitation. And it's got some other conflicts with, um, you know, what really motivates Einstein is there are, in a relativistic understanding of motion, there's a direct contradiction to some of the things that Newton says uh, about how velocities add and, you know, just the way things work when you have objects in motion. Um, and it was that logical contradiction and that sense that, you know, yes, relativity works for everything and not gravity. That doesn't make sense. It either works or it doesn't. It should be universal. Uh, that motivates Einstein to start thinking, what would a relativistic theory of gravity look like? And I'm not going to go through all the steps, as I'm sure you'll be very grateful to hear. Um, but basically, he, you know, through enormously difficult intellectual labor and some just, you know, the reason people think Einstein is so remarkable, in part, is because he had these imaginative leaps that, you know, make sense once they are made and then, you know, placed in the framework he's trying to understand them in. But how he gets to them, you have no idea. The, the key one for this, this particular area is he sees a roofer working on a tall building across the, the street from his office, and he suddenly has the question, what would happen? What would he feel if he fell from that roof? And he realized, as he fell he wouldn't be able to distinguish uh, between um, the perception of free fall in space and just dropping like a body uh, in a, a gravitational field. And he realized that you could then use that to make um, some very important conceptual leaps. Eventually, he gets to the critical idea that makes the whole thing go, which is that what we perceive as gravity is not actually, as Newton did, you know, a force somehow reaching across space to pull us one way or another. Um, but is actually the way we perceive what is, in fact, a claim about geometry, the shape of space and time. And this move from an idea of dynamic forces into something that's seen as, I, mean, I, I, see, some, I see some sort of furrowed brows, just trust me on this one, as, um, as, as, as a geometrical one, is this extraordinary leap. It's true. Um, as, again, another wonderful aphorism that I'm stealing from somebody else, in this case, John Wheeler, uh, in a relativistic universe, Matter and energy tell space and time what shape to be, and the shape of space and time then dictate to matter and energy the paths it can take. And you see Einstein working this out. It takes him several years to get to this point. This is 1913. He takes the theory as far as he can go. And here he has the first drawing. Let me see. I think I've got a closer up of that. Yeah. Okay, so that's starlight. There's a star back here. It's going very close to the sun. The sun's a great big mass, so it's got a big dent in space-time that creates a curve that this thing bends around. And even though if the sun weren't there, if we were seeing the star at night, you know, the star would be up there. Um, we'll perceive it, if we can see it during an eclipse, uh, 
in a position different from what we would ordinarily see it uh, in the night sky. So that's a consequence of the curvature of spacetime. He doesn't get it quite right in 1913. There's still some things he has to do. Um, but eventually, he, uh, through a variety of, of steps and, and, and expedients, he gets to the correct formulation of the theory. And he comes up with his explanation for the orbit of Mercury. There's the sun. There is its dent in spacetime. And Mercury is not traveling in a nice flat region of space, as, you know, for example, the Earth basically is. Um, it's kind of deep in this gravity well, right? And so its orbit is dictated by the particular shape of spacetime uh, where it happens to be located. And, uh, and that produces, as Einstein calculated in 24 lines of equations, uh, sometime in that week between November 11th and November 18th, that, um, that this was just the way it had to go. There was no anomaly. In Einstein's universe, Mercury was doing what it ought to do. In Newton's universe, you had to invoke Vulcan to explain it. And in Einstein's, you no longer needed it. Um, you know, it's, it's a picture, you know, this is, the words paradigm shift are overused. Uh, people sometimes point to this as an example of a paradigm shift. I actually think, though, I never, I never mention this book. And, and, you know, I don't use book as I hope uh, a quick and, 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 and enjoyable read. Um, but the, one of the points about the whole narrative of Vulcan is that in the end, it turns out that the claim that facts the facts determine our understanding of nature is simply false because facts themselves don't tell you what they mean. You need the framework within which you are identifying facts to help you interpret them. And if your framework cannot accept the actual meaning of that fact, it is a, a, both an emotional and intellectual challenge of enormous weight to get to the right answer, uh, which is why things like general relativity are the occasion for heroic labor that turn into great joy when you actually get it right. Now, Einstein knew he was right once he got Mercury out of the system. Once he got Mercury out of his equations, you know, the theory had to be correct. It was the same moment as Newton had when he got the parabolic orbit for the, uh, for the comet correct. Uh, the rest of the world, of course, needs more than the resolution to a 60-year-old uh, bit of arcane solar system dynamics to accept the theory. Uh, and so the, the famous public test of the theory was the Eclipse Expedition in 1919 when British astronomers measured the bending of starlight just as Einstein had, uh, had suggested in 1913. Uh, and they found not the 1913 number that Einstein had proposed, which was wrong because he still didn't have the theory right, but the correct number that was different from the number that using Newton's theory you would have expected. And that's when Einstein became a global celebrity. Here is the New York Times headline from just a couple days after this result was announced. Uh, I think it beats Headless Man Found in Topless Bar uh, as the greatest headline in the history of newspapers. Uh, and my actual, um, uh, there's at least one obvious lie in it. No, no more in all the world could comprehend it, said Einstein when his daring publishers accepted it. That's nonsense. Um, I love the nobody need worry about the stars being where they weren't supposed to be. But my absolute favorite is men of science more or less agog over results of, ex uh, of eclipse observations. And I've, been spent, I've spent 25 years wondering what the scale of agogity is and how you can be more or less than it. Anyway, um, so that's really you know, the story of the book. It's some of the story of how I got to the book. It's a bit of the story um, why I think the story matters much, much more than um, uh, just as, a, as a, an amusing tale uh, from the corners of the history of science. Uh, if, I were to, if I were to put 
why it's important, at least to me, in, in a sentence or two, it is, I think, it's very easy to look at the 20 years during which people were seeing this thing uh, that wasn't there as a tale of folly and self-delusion and, you know, bad science, uh, you know, Victorian gentlemen gone awry. Um, and, you know, that's an, that's an example of a fallacy that I think we fall into a lot, which is assuming that we are not just more knowledgeable in the past, but also wiser. And we aren't. Um, I don't know which stories we are in science we're looking at right now, uh, which, you know, accounts of social change that we're looking at right now, uh, where our fundamental assumptions are just, you know, outmatched by reality. Could be that our, all, every idea we have about consciousness and all the metaphors of computation we use to understand it uh, are actually leading us down the wrong path. It could be that, you know, string theory has more than the enormous problems people have already identified and is just a, a blind alley which, you know, generations of physicists will have poured their, their hearts and souls into. It, you know, it could be, a, you know, almost anything, but I can guarantee you that as we may be tempted to laugh at our Victorian forebears in this story, 100 years from now, I'm sure people sitting in this room will have reason to laugh at us. And um, so I guess the last moral of my story is that it's a cautionary tale uh, and one of, of that should inspire necessary humility in all of us as uh, inquirers of reality around us. So the only other thing I'm going to say before opening everything up to questions is uh, it's very interesting to actually publish a book in 2015. This is what you call a mid-list trade book. It is um, the publisher and I have great hopes for it, uh, but no particular expectations, neither negative nor positive. Um, so it's not getting, uh, you know, a print run of 100,000 and advertisements in every, you know, outlet and a 20-city tour and interviews on every uh, major media outlet. What it's getting is, you know, what publicity it can, articles that I place, reviews that are starting to trickle in and will, will continue to, to appear in greater frequency over the next few weeks, I've been told, I hope. Um, and the requirement just the expectation, the you know, all kinds of planning in many meetings to uh, sort of express this book in social media somehow. Uh, and this is a consequence of the fact that the world of, of you know, the, the, the literal marketplace of ideas has basically disappeared. You still have the New York Times book review. You still have the New York Review of Books. You have a few other publications that, um, that perform literary journalism. Um, but compared to not that long ago, when there were major metro dailies, and often two or even three in some cases, uh, in most of the medium to large cities in the United States, most of them had at least one full-time book critic. And you know there would be reviews during the week and a bigger section on Sunday. And there were syndicated reviews from the Associated Press and all this sort of thing. Um, and there was a sense that not, not only you know, the New York, Review, New York Times Review would be a thought leader in this space, but the LA Times book review mattered, and the Washington Post book review mattered, and the Boston Globe's review section mattered, all these kinds of things. That's almost entirely gone. I mean, even the Times review itself is, uh, you know, a fraction of the news hole, just a fraction of the number of books it, it, it covers and the length it covers it in. Um, so there are, you know, but in fact, if you look at the, the marketplace for books, again, the literal marketplace for books, uh, Book sales numbers are not growing at you know 10% year over year, uh, or 20% as the 
conglomerates that own most of the publishers would dearly like them to be. Um, but they're still growing at a slow pace, and it's a large market. It's you know in the tens of billions. Um, so people are finding books, and they are mostly finding books through different applications of so-called new media, uh, which is increasingly not so new, and uh, various attempts to construct uh, communities of interest through social media and other digitally digital approaches. And you know, I, I would really like to talk about this with you. I'm not going to, you know, I am I am a writer, and you know inadvertently and reluctantly a person who uses Twitter and is just tiptoeing into Facebook and all these kinds of things. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not deeply versed in it, but I, what is striking to me is that this, this book and the experience of, of many creative projects is a, a real probe of the way that, of a phenomenon that many, many people have noticed, which is that uh, digitally enabled communication at once constructs communities across lines that were impossible to, to bridge uh, in previous years and decades and atomizes experience. And the trick that everybody tries to crack is how to construct around each project some community of interest that will allow the book to reach the much larger number of people who would actually be interested in it than actually will likely find out about it. And this is, you know, you know up close and personal for me, but this is not, you know, remotely unique to this book or my experience. It's a very common experience, and it's one that I think crosses over from books to many, many other forms of expression. And uh, I have no answers on either how to do that or what you know, the real drivers of the phenomenon are, but that is, in fact, your job. And so with that, let's talk about it. Over to you guys. Exaggerating a little when you said I was the interlocutor. I'm basically just monitoring the Q&A, although I do have some of my own questions, should there perchance be a lag in conversation. Um, but let's, let's start by opening up to you. Questions for Professor Robinson? Stunned into submission again. Well, we My work here is done. Yeah. I guess I'm curious what you think the Europeans are doing. How, how is everybody reacting in Europe to the French in particular? Uh, I don't know. I actually. What is the history in France? Well, one of the things the French should like. Oh, I, I think. I mean, one of the things the French should like is there was, in fact, a, a sort of priority controversy over Neptune between Le Verrier and a, a British astronomer, um, and for all kinds of reasons, somewhat related to you know, or, or you know, not exactly like, but but akin to the argument okay. over who first uh, identified uh, the HIV virus, you know, where there was Montagnier and Gallo in France and the U.S. Um, there was, a, a, at the level of sort of international diplomacy, it was decided they should share credit. But in fact, Le Verrier was the one who did it. That's generally acknowledged in, you know, amongst the historians of astronomers now. And uh, that's certainly how I treat it. I, mean, I, I recognize Le Verrier as, as the man. Um, so hopefully on that, you know, on that score, the French have no complaint. Um, I don't know. I think I think, you know, by nineteen fifteen, the French had no stake in in um, in defending what was actually, in the end, the defense of an English scientist, uh, Newton. Um, the trickier part is, of course, Einstein and his reception in France immediately after World War One, um, and. Uh, internationalists and pacifists in both Germany and France sought to use Einstein 
as a bridge between the two countries, uh, you know, a way to begin to reconcile uh, re reconcile them after just the dreadful, you know, utterly horrific experience of World War One. And Einstein took that role on. So I don't think Einstein himself is controversial either. In 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 you know, he's not seen as a, as the jackboot heel of you know German intellectual authoritarianism. You know, squashing French independence. At least I hope not. Thank you so much for the talk. Um, first, for your clarification, did I hear you say that you put this book together in five months? Yes. That gives me hope for my master's thesis because I think we have six months for that. Exactly. <laughs> but you thought about a lot of stuff for like 20 years, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a longer project than yeah. the making. Um, what I was very curious about hearing about just how scientists were almost to the point of obsession trying to figure out mercury as a problem and how that maps onto contemporary scientific problems with the case goes on and things that we kind of have a concept of but haven't quite found the right mechanisms to describe or um, the research has just come to a point where it can definitively say it is this or that. Yeah. Um, I wonder um, if you could talk more about that relationship. We started to kind of get at it, but I would love to hear more about what you think. Well, it's, I mean, the, one thing about the Vulcan story is it's really clean. It's, it's unnaturally straightforward, right? It's sort of the extreme example of the, of the kind of um, a contingency of science on, on the various things that can throw you off from your, uh, your framework or your theoretical predisposition to the limits of your instruments. And, uh, and, just, and contemporary discourse and the, the you know, influence of, of you know, extremely high prestige individuals. Uh, but you can see that, uh, you can see those manifest themselves in different degrees and in different mixtures and lots of things. Um, a classic example, there are lots of complexities in it, but a classic example where you can see it pretty clearly is in the history of the continental drift hypothesis. First proposed in 1912, not fully accepted in 65. And you can say that there's, you know, there, there's an instrumentation and observational gap that doesn't allow you to you know, fully res you know, resolve that dispute for a while. Um, there are all kinds of things you can say, but there were some very clear anomalies in the geological record that required explanation. And um, from the 19-teens forward, the drift uh, explanation was always cleaner and simpler than the ones pushed against it. Um, and yet the question remained open, arguably, at least a, you know, you know, for decades, and, and arguably for at least a decade after um, the critical uh, data about you know, the, chain, the, magnet, the spreading seafloor of the Earth, uh, which was found during you know, exploration during immediately after World War II, and some features of the magnetism of the Earth that you know, really settled the question in terms of providing a clear mechanism for the drift. But you know, it was a, you know, even after that, it was, it was a good decade before the, you know, I finally said, yes, okay, uh, the continents weren't always where they are now. So that's a, that's a good example where, where a commitment to a kind of um, almost pre-Copernic, you know, Aristotelian sense of the fixity of nature uh, was stronger for longer than anyone had would reasonably accept. Um, I think if you look at, uh, you, you know, there's the history of the interpretation of genes in the genome is really interesting because people settled very quickly on very strongly held assumptions. Uh, you know, at one point, 
the, 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 uh, the um, one gene, one protein, one trait sequence was referred to as the central dogma of genetics from the 50s forward. And it wasn't until you know, enough experience accumulated with, with a whole bunch of different systems that it became clear that the central dogma was, in fact, you know, not, in fact, the way it all works. And we're in another moment like that right now where we have, in, we, we have very clear indications that there's a whole bunch of complexity in the way uh, genes and their environment interact. Uh, and it's not clear that our frameworks for understanding that are, are up to the complexity of the phenomena. Um, there's certainly examples in physics, um, though. There's also some, you know, the sociology of physics is very different than it is from some other sciences. Uh, so that adds a level of complexity. And you know, I can talk about this stuff for hours, but I won't because you guys probably want to have some other options. But yes, there are other examples. And, I mean, as I say, the, 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 the nice thing about finding historically a very clean story is it allows you to see, okay, this is the, this is the er form of this you know, kind of emotional and intellectual transaction. And you can see how different aspects of this play out in different uh, experiences in other times and in other fields. One question about uh, writing a historical narrative like this and so forth that you do that we perhaps Right. Um, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit more about your process about, um, first of all, developing the historical narrative and then thinking about balancing the telling of events against things like how much detail you need to go into to explain the scientific principles that are in play or um, perhaps uh, going off into talking about some of the sociological implications of what your story says. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have like uh, ways that you approach that strategically? And if not, is it just on a case-by-case -case basis? The part that about that. Well, the short answer is yes. Um, I mean, I always have some kind of strategy, uh, and I do think about the, those problems a lot. But, you know, um, the actual experience of writing when it's going well for me is you, know, you get up in the morning, you have some coffee, you go for a run, and then you sit down, I sit down to my desk, they, they, you know, get out of the second person here, and um, sort of dive into it for something like four to six hours. And you know, I snack rather than stop for meals and you know, all that kind of stuff. And I get very immersed in that scale of problem. You know, I'm writing, I expect in that time to write 700 words so I'll have some transi uh, transitions to make. I'll have the structure of an argument to make. Um, I'll have to understand where that 700 words fit into a narrative. In this case, 45 or 46,000 words. In the book I'm doing now, 100,000 to 120,000 words. Um, so, so you know, there's a there's a a part of my process that really is very sort of you know uh, all trees or maybe even weeds and no forest. Uh, but there are you know I write. Uh, I, I write, I use history, um, I f uh, partly because, you know, some people paint landscapes and some people paint abstractions. I paint, you know, I, I write history because that's how, um, I think history is a great bullshit detector and I think historical understanding, especially for a technically complex field. You know, the nice thing about history is you can always go back to a point when the problem you're interested in was simple enough for, for 21st century lay people to understand. And if you start from there and build, 
you can take them along with you into greater and greater you know complexity and density and so forth and so on in ways that they you know it's like the false metaphor of the you know frog in cold water being slowly boiled. Um, I, I don't try and boil my readers, but but uh, and that story, as James Fellows always reminds us, is not true. Um, but um, but I also I, I I meant very seriously what I said earlier about thinking of these things in literary terms and using literary tools to work with my stuff. Uh, the great advantage of being a, a somebody focused on science as a way into understanding culture and society. Um, I mean, I'm not just a historian of science, science or scientific ideas. I am interested in science for the ways it allows us to get into much broader ranges of human experience, whether it's character and personality or you know, what's actually driving you know, change at a given time, uh, how scientific ideas inform and, and uh, create the the you know, self-description of a time and all that sort of stuff. Um, but one of the great things you have when you work in, in this area is the narrative can be the narrative of the life of an idea. In this case, the narrative was of you know, Vulcan, 1859-1915, RIP, um, and you know, taking, you know, stepping through the planet, as it were, it's um, this change from a, a divinely ordered to a mathematically described, to a uh, mathematically described universe, and then to what happens when your, you know, broad understanding of the universe is no longer adequate. So I have that as a, a that's the drama. That's the you know the that's the tragedy. I mean, people committed lives and effort to an attempt to understand and then defend the Newtonian worldview, and they failed, right? You know, I don't phrase it explicitly as a tragedy, but there is an element of sorrow in in a sincere and coherent commitment to things that don't work out, and that's always present in science. You know, you always have that to play with. Um, somebody asked me at a talk on Tuesday, you know, how uh, how you can make humanly interesting and narratively powerful characters when you're bouncing from the 17th century to the 20th century. And the answer is through all the individual's commitment to this changing stream of ideas. So that, as a process and as, as a strategy, is always with me, just about everything I do. That that give you what you want? Get tell you what you need? A little follow-up question. Um, how close do you go to saying to your readers, "This story is tragic"? I try to, you know, I, my the, my my other half is the other half of my existence is is as a documentary filmmaker. And that that beats into the soul the idea that you should show them that you you can let you, you should lay out the narrative in a way that the reader or the viewer can discover the emotional valence and the intellectual significance and you know the loving of it or the loathing of it or whatever it may be uh, for themselves. It should be imminent in the work. Not that said, this book has uh, a narrative flow. It has and it has three uh, sort of uh, Interludes or, or, or little essays in which I do talk about things that I find interesting and in, that the story raises. So I don't entirely live my own credo. But I don't know. Any of you know um, John Steinbeck's um, follow up, a, a sequel to Canary Rose, Sweet Tuesday, Sweet Thursday? Okay, anyway. Uh, there's a marvelous little essay on hoop to doodle in it where Steinbeck says, every now and, you know, I always hate in stories the bits where the, where the writer just sort of waxes 
you know, enthusiastic about something or other. Um, those are the hoop to doodle parts. But every now and then I like to write them, and I'll mark them as hoop to doodle. That's the chapter title. And if you weren't interested in it, just skip them. And you know, I think if it was good enough for uh, for Mr. Steinbeck, it's good enough for me. I can have my own version of hoop to doodle every now and then, and you can too. Um. And uh, towards the end, you described your book as a midlist trade book, yeah. right? Meaning it's not for everybody, a mass audience. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what it means at all. No. No, no. Well, let me tell you what I thought it meant. Okay. It really mean. yeah. That, you know, like a, a book for a super mass audience would be, say, you know, Oprah's autobiography, which really isn't for everybody, but it's obviously, you know, really mass market. Mm -hmm. And then there'd be like, a, on the other extreme, there'd be a really, really niche market sort of book on Gilles Deleuze and X, Y, Z, you know. Um, so I interpreted that as you know somewhere in the middle, and I was going to ask you who you. So I was going to ask you then who you imagine your audience to be now versus when you were writing, if they're the kind of the same thing, and how much just how much you think about your audience while you're writing. Well, those are those are actually I think really three questions. First yes. of all, very quickly on the sort of bestiary of publishing, uh, there are mass market books, there are trade books, and then there are academic books, and there there are more subdivisions than that, but those are three broad categories. Um, and mass market books are, you know, the latest Elmore, well, sadly, the last Elmore Leonard, um, Oprah, all that kind of stuff. I mean, Oprah was, is published by trade publishers. But, you know, the, the sort of smaller cut paperbacks you see in airport bookstores are mass market books, uh, published by people like Dell and Bantam and other places like that, that also publish trade books. Trade books are so-called serious books, which are intended to have, you know, weight and heft and all that sort of stuff. And they can be self-help, they can be Oprah, they can be um, a, a very serious and, and you know, extremely uh, you know, um, A-list book like uh, Steve Silverman's Neurotribes that's just out and on the bestseller lists. There's a deeply researched, serious history of autism in the 20th century. So you know, these things are not descriptions of subject matter. They're descriptions really of the approach to marketing and the expected scale of their market um, penetration. And midlist books um, are books that they expect will find some audience, and they expect also that some, but there's no way of telling which up front, or they can't tell which up front, uh, will break big. Uh, a classic example of a midlist book that became a, for, you know, one of the best-selling books in the science field uh, in, in living memory is Rebecca Sploot's um, uh, The Immortal Life of uh, Henrietta Lacks, which was a $60,000 advance. It took her 10 years to write. Uh, by the time it's finally published, no one had the clue what expectations it should have, uh, except Rebecca, who, who brilliantly, I mean, it was, it's a wonderful book, but she brilliantly managed its launch into the world as well. Um, and it's sold worldwide in the millions of copies, even though it started out in life as a, as a relatively small advance and relatively low uh, expectations book. Um, and, you know, the books that are presented as major books that come out, you know, that are, you know, it's, it's like, you know, you, you can have a Hollywood blockbuster fail, but it'll still open at 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 screens, um, and that's the, the, the expectation of it. And you can have an art house... Uh, or, or, you know, independent film that'll open in 20 screens with the hope that the right 20 screens and the right word of mouth will generate them into the th you know, thousands of screen world eventually. Um, and that's what midlist books hope, is they, they open in ways that attract interested audience and they build into something bigger. 
And that happens in the world in different ways. I mean, uh, 10 years ago, people thought there would be no independent bookstores left in America. Independent bookstores are on the rise again. Um, and indie bookstores can make a midlist book. Um, you know, I was very, I was thrilled to learn that Harvard Books is going to put uh, Vulcan on their 100 for the holidays list. Because that's the kind of thing, bookstore by bookstore, that can you know, slowly turn a book from a little sell 10,000 copies and we'll all be happy to selling 40, 50,000, you know, whatever. You know, you have dreams. Millions, by God, by millions. Um, and, you know, then academic books are, are, are written for other reasons um, and uh, are published into different expectations. And the world of academic uh, publishing has its own enormous pathologies right now and challenges. Uh, and you find... Uh, as a consequence of, of that and all the same pressures that run across the entire world of publishing, this blurring of lines, academic publishers trying to publish into trade channels. Uh, I mean, we saw that with Vivek's book, for example, recently in our own department. That's a book that broke out from, to some degree, from the usual expectations of an academic release. Do you know Vivek Bald and his, his uh, blanking on the title of the book? Uh, Bengali, Harlem. Bengali Harlem, yeah. He's presenting Okay, well, you know, that, that, that book was intended, I mean, it was designed and intended by Harvard to have at least a chance to reach beyond the traditional university libraries and, and three, three to five hundred professors in that field, uh, which is the expected goal for most monographs. Um, so I've lost the plot of your question a bit, so, so tell me. I, oh, uh, what you're saying about the Vivek's book, did it, did it go trade? It, it, was, it was marketed into trade channels. It was sold in ordinary bookstores, and it did, I mean, I think it did well. I mean, I, you know, what well is, you know, what doing well is is, is, is situational for every book. You know, for an academic book. For an academic book, yes. I think it did very well indeed. Oh, yeah, and, and, and he got attention from, you know, the New York Times wrote him. I mean, he got, he got the kind of attention you want for a trade book, which is great. Um, I was... Uh, Misdefining midless trade book, mm-hmm. and then I was asking you about um, audience. That's right. Explain. Then I was asking about audience, and yeah, how much you think about your reader when you're writing implicitly versus explicitly? Um, I mean, when you're, are you thinking? Uh, uh, well, there are a lot of Einstein nerds in America. You know, just like people who are just interested in this guy's character, mm-hmm. and that's already kind of my base for this book. And then there are others who. Well, ha- having having written a big and actually fairly well received Einstein book, that got you know, I mean, uh, there's no phrase an author likes to hear less than a critical success, <laughs> because of the obvious. Uh, but that was the Einstein book. Um, so I'm not laboring under the delusion that that just because you put Einstein in the title, you you get sales. Um, you know, I'm. You know, I have ambitions for the work, and I have things I want to achieve as a writer. And I hope they will. I want to write. Uh, I want to write as as near to beautifully as I can. Uh, I want to write compelling, um, compellingly, you know, multi-layered texts. I want them to have great plot, and I want them to have um, lots of, of Easter eggs in the writing, and and trapdoors in the plot that allow you to think about. A much wider range of things. I've got all those kinds of ambitions, and I am trying to write for the kind of reader I imagine myself to be, which is interested in a whole bunch of shit, um, and and you know a reader, 
and somebody who, who uh, wants a well-constructed book about more or less anything, and I'll be fine. Um, if I have an imagined audience, it's you know smart high school kids who fall in love with sort of nonfiction in the natural world, and the people they grow up grow up into being, and their friends and parents, right? Um, so it's not everybody, I guess, but it's it's not a niche audience, and it's not, you know, um, and most of all, they are not people who are explicitly present in my mind while I'm writing. After it's done, and I'm riding my bike, and I'm imagining accepting all my awards, and cashing all my royalty checks, and so forth, I have I have expansive views of who my audience might be. But while I'm actually writing, not nah, just trying, you just. It, Struggling with the prose takes all the energy, right? You can't worry too much about, you know, the the the, um, the insane chorus in your head. Just get the sentences out. Um, we have four minutes left. Um, I w- I have another question, but does anyone else have? Question? Nobody's going to help me out on creating communities for books that that need to find, you know. Because the thing I have found with my own work, frankly, is that uh, people who discover... I mean, my last book was called Newton and the Counterfeiter, and it's just this amazing story of Newton as a cop chasing down bad guys in 17th century London. And the amazing thing is it's all true, and it reveals actually some just incredibly cool things about, about this point of extraordinary intellectual, and social, and cultural, and political change. Um, and people who come across the book just love it. They really do. As a cop. Yeah. I can see a great TV show in that. Yeah, we have hopes. <laughs> no, it's under option, um, right. which of course means that I mean, like Joe Haldeman's, uh, you know, utterly pathbreaking novel, The Forever War, was under option for thirty-five years. I think it's allegedly being made now. Yeah, see. So. Ah, yeah. hmm? uh, you would ask that. By somebody. Ridley Scott was interesting. Yeah, I think I think it might actually be Ridley Scott. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, we hope it'll happen. I think Kip Thorne's consulting on it. I hope so, because he actually uh, he, he he knows the he knows the science that's in, that's embedded in that book very well indeed. But um, so, but it's it's very very you know it's really interesting because in the you know romance the sort of romance genre and to a lesser extent um, crime and science fiction stuff have created very vibrant online communities Uh, and um, I think there is a sort of autonomous uh, book critic, book you know uh, book cheering, book sharing uh, communities there Uh, but it's not broadly true and it's very hard to you know see how you can sort of I mean, I don't know if these things simply form spontaneously, and we have to, you know, just keep tossing sparks onto the onto the uh, the woodpile and see when it finally catches flame, or if there are ways to really approach uh, identifying and 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 engaging with people. I don't know. I think that's partially because like those seven genres have like been marginalized a lot by like academia. I don't know if it's academia per se. I think, you know, uh, certainly in the literary world, um, 
you know, bodice rippers and, you know, swords and sorcery stuff is not seen as terribly serious, though it's enormously profitable. I mean, you know, I've got to say it pays for a lot of very highfalutin folks' salaries. Um, so uh, I think there is probably some, yeah, you know, we are culturally disdained. We are the nerd communities. We are the kids in high school who, who have to sit over there for lunch, all that sort of stuff. And there's no doubt that that sort of sense of us against them plays a role in the creation of these online communities. Um, but some of that obtains for, you know, science writing and, you know, uh, other, kinds of, uh, other kinds of stuff. I mean, it may simply be less a problem of identifying audience and trying to connect with people. But, you know, there really is just, we're in a period of rapidly changing patterns of consumption. And the habit of buying a book you're interested in is much less well-ingrained than it was, right? Um, when was the last time you guys just wandered into a bookstore and bought a book you weren't intending to buy? You didn't go in there. So, Patsy, I know, I know you do it all, but how recently? For me, it was yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah, but it's not. But we're but we're old and 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 from that culture, and I think for a lot of people. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of evidence for a lot of people that the um, sort of the spontaneous experience of books has changed a great deal. Um, and uh, and look, even my you know my experience, you know, I, I the fact that I can pull down uh, all kinds of visual entertainment, which I love, uh, on my iPad whenever I have five minutes to spare. When I was a kid, I had a book in my backpack, and I pulled, I would walk along the street reading the book. And I don't, you know, I, I still occasionally pull out my phone and read my Kindle app, but there are 20 other apps on there that, that provide other material to me that I also use as I walk down the street bumping into people. Um, and, you know, as for me, so even more so for lots of other people. Um, and I think that the difficulty in constructing communities around text is in part because um, the identities people have around the media they consume has changed so much. Um, and again, I don't know how, I, you know, they, these, this is what you guys are actually explicitly studying and will go make careers out of, so I rely on you to think about this and tell me what to do. Um, but I can tell you that just sort of the experience of it is really interesting. Putting a book out of it, you might, you know, my first book didn't sell very well either. But it got reviewed in the New Yorker, in the New York Times. It felt like part of a national conversation. And other books that I've published since that have sold more have felt less so. And that's a, that is a, a datum on the fact of media change rather than any sort of deep explanatory tool for it. But I'm just telling you that from the, from the place where I sit, I can, you know, you are studying the right kinds of things and you aren't figuring it out fast enough for me, goddammit. <laughs> um, well, I think I'm going to end with like a comment more than a question, but at one point you uh, stepped aside to define science writing mm -hmm. and give the qualities of it, and you said that it was didactic, expository, had a civic function, is a literary genre, uh, provides a connection for a reader, and um, any story you tell is always about something more than the plot. Right. And I thought, that's great. It sounds like kind of good, a good book in general. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, not as specific to science. Right? Oh, ab absolutely. Yeah. I, I, and I say that explicitly because I think there's a, there is a misapprehension of science writing as teaching you stuff you ought to know. Right. It's better or worse flavored cod liver oil. And I'm saying, no, it's really not. Yeah. Great. Right. Well, thank you. <laughs>